Welcome to Saving the Game. This is episode 47, Monsters. Recorded Thursday, September 4th of 2014, with your hosts, Grant, Peter, and Brandon. Welcome to Saving the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. I'm Terrible, also known as Brandon. All right, then. So, a couple of quick bits of news here. First, I want to remind everybody that we are going to be recording episode 50 live, as in in a hangout on air with the Q&A enabled, so you can talk to us and ask us questions. We're going to be recording that October 16th. We're going to go live around 7.30 Eastern in the evening, obviously. Keep an eye out for that. We'll definitely be posting about it and making sure everybody who tunes into our Facebook, Twitter, Google Plus feed, etc., make sure that you guys all have the URL for that and know that the Hangout is going on. So we're looking forward to that. We're going to be talking about character creation, and of course we want to have feedback from you guys on that topic and any other questions you guys might have. We're going to be talking about what makes an interesting character, not just character creation. Right, right. Uh, Next little bit of news. Our backlog is now 100% complete. Hooray! Which means Yay, that we have fully so. transitioned over to Podbean from our previous hosting company, which kind of stuck well, us. Yeah, <laughs> kind of, yeah. We, we now have everything in the feed where it should be, so you can go through our RSS feed. And now it's time for Podbean to drop us and start it all over again. Don't even say <laughs> yeah. that. Cut it now. Thank you, Jinx Man. <laughs> I said I'm horrible. <laughs> Here, here's what's going to happen. You're going to pay for the transition costs when that happens when this episode yeah. drops, all right? You know what? You're also going to pay for, like, Google-level hosting for us. You have a job now. No excuses. We're going to go straight from Podbean to level three for this. <laughs> You're employed. No excuses, right? Yep. <clears throat> In other news, Brandon is employed. Yay. Still employed. Still loving Yay. it. Yay. And apparently it's a good job. And by the time this episode drops, Save Against Fear 2014 will have been awesome. And I can't tell you whether or not that's what, but I think it's going to be awesome. It should be. Well, you're going to be there, so that'll raise the awesome quotient a little. Indeed. Yes. And one last thing, since I'd mentioned our uh, social media feeds, if you're not following us on there, go ahead and do so. We always uh, can use the subscribers, and it'll keep you up to date about not just episodes, but other interesting stuff that's going on. And if there's an episode you particularly like, I do want you to take a moment and share that out with uh, the people that follow you on your social media network of choice. Because, hey, gets us an audience and hopefully it will give you some interesting content to talk about with your friends. So that's always worthwhile. Indeed, we hit 100 likes today. We hit like 115. It was kind of crazy. Yeah, there were, the floodgates <laughs> opened. Yeah. And we can uh, thank one geek breacher for that. So, and <laughs> probably also Mike Berna. It's good having uh, good geeky friends, right? Yes, absolutely. All right. So, let's hit our scripture, shall we? All right. And this is Numbers 13, 32, and 33. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, The land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak came from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And our next bit of scripture is Job, chapter 41, verses 12 to 14. I will not fail to speak of Leviathan's limbs, its strength and its graceful form. Who can strip off its outer coat? Who can penetrate its double coat of armor? Who dares open the doors of its mouth, ringed about with fearsome teeth? Matthew fourteen twenty-five through 27 Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When his disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. So our topic tonight is monsters, which is a topic that Peter actually had the privilege of talking about a couple of months ago on uh, Crossover Nexus Episode 2. Roundtable podcast that a number of Christian geek podcasts, podcasters, and vloggers are doing. It's had a little bit of a hiatus, but we're planning to get it started. So give that a listen at crossovernexus.com. And we're also kind of hoping to have at least one of us on every episode because it's cool to talk with the other geeky faith people. Let's yeah, exactly. Do There's it. three of us. I mean, we've got numbers. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hooray. But uh, do listen to that. It's kind of cool. But we're going to kind of 
I touch on that topic again, monsters, and I wanted to kind of start this conversation off with you guys by asking why stories and games that involve monsters, as opposed to other people as antagonists, are so interesting. One of the first things that comes to mind is variety. I mean, if you're playing a, a modern game of some kind, you're going to kind of know exactly what it is you're going to be facing, right? I mean, you'll be up against various types of bad people and possibly dangerous animals, but everything's native to Earth. It's all documented. It all kind of follows a standard set of abilities. You know, everything here is within a certain spectrum of strength and speed and, you know, natural weapons and stuff. But monsters can really change it up. They can do stuff that nothing here on Earth can do. They can breathe fire or they can, you know, teleport or they can turn invisible or they can do all these other kind of interesting and scary things. And it it changes the game up a little bit by keeping you on your toes just that little bit more. It kind of, even though most monsters are pretty trope-defined too, it it drags a bunch of extra tropes into it, and it kind of opens things up a little. Well, I would kind of go the opposite route on that, because in my opinion, it's, of course, I've trumpeted it on here, I have studied stories and different things like that, and when you really look at a lot of the monsters, they're actually tend to be reflections of people. Absolutely, or our fears. Another thing is, monsters were created in stories to explain the unexplainable, or to talk about harsh punishments for disobedience or other lessons that were taught. Monsters come from fables. Fables are handed down from tribes to tribes, or civilizations to civilizations, or cities to cities, or towns to towns, to basically explain, don't go out in the woods, there's wolves there. <laughs> don't do this, or else you'll be in trouble. Here be dragons. And it talks about the things that, as Peter said, we are afraid of. Um, and nowadays it also talks about what we're afraid of a lot of in ourselves. Yeah. You know, it's interesting, because I think I disagree with both of you on this. <laughs> I, or at least, it, for me, that's not the standout thing. I think both of you are absolutely right in what you're saying. But the reason that monster stories are so interesting to me is that monsters aren't human. The more monstrous and inhuman something is, the more interesting it is, because it gets us further and further away from the place we're comfortable in. The, you know, as we get deeper and deeper into alien territories, you know, where monsters live, out here where there are dragons and monsters, we're in some place that we shouldn't be. It's not our place. So that alien nature of a monster fascinates me. And of course, you know, turning that around, when the alien other comes to us and intrudes on this carefully constructed and cultivated civilized world that we've created, that's an equally interesting story because all of a sudden it emphasizes the fragility of the nature of that. I can see that. And like, I don't want to say that Peter is wrong or that you're wrong. No, I don't think either of you guys are wrong either, but that that's the standout feature yeah. of monsters. I think I did say that Peter was wrong, so I'm I'm officially taking that back. I meant to say I see a different view from him. Uh, and I, I sort of see where you're coming at, but again, of course, I'd say that still, in any good story and with any good monster, there is something relatable in it. Oh, yeah. No, there has to be something relatable by and large, but sometimes that relatability is sort of by omission. In the most extreme cases. Well, hang on just a second. I, I want to stop you right there because I think some of the most classic and enduring monsters are from the works of H.P. Lovecraft, and the idea behind them is that they're not relatable. The thing that makes them monstrous is that they're so other. They are, but here's the thing. But that's a different type of monster. The, that cosmic horror idea is something that it, it's so other that it reveals to us how fragile our understanding of the universe is and how tiny our little safe corner of it actually is, right? That, that's the, the essence of cosmic horror. But at the same time, we reveal that by either something in an incursion into our safe little reality or us exploring into places man should not know, right? That, that classic idea of, you know, things man were not meant to know and going mad because of that, because that by knowing that, by trying to understand that, you can't be human, 
no human can comprehend that. Therefore, people who cannot, who can comprehend that have lost their humanity. That, that's kind of the essence of that Lovecraftian cosmic horror. Right. And that's, that's why that so often in that kind of story, you see protagonists going crazy from what they've right, seen. Right. Or antagonists, either or. But even then, yes, it's, it's incredibly alien, right? That's the essence of that alien concept. But as Brandon was saying, that reveals something about us, especially our fears. Like you were saying, the fear that, you know, our safe, comfortable, civilized world could fall apart at any moment because, you know, we're, we're at the mercy of things we can't even understand. Yeah. Right. Uh, would you guys mind if I just skip down <laughs> to the three types of monsters? Because no, we're dancing it. really close to that anyway, but... There are three types of monsters which I've heard about. If anyone's looking for a reference on it, might I suggest the Beast Macabre episode of Extra Credits, which talks about these various types of monsters. Also, their work on horror protagonists is very interesting. They mention three types of monsters, which is something that I have seen. The first is the Abstract Monster. Uh, this actually is the, the Lovecraftian monster, or simply the... The Hitchcockian monster. He doesn't show you what is on screen. He puts up a situation that's tense, that's scary, that allows you to be scared and frightened because we are all the best at scaring and exciting ourselves. Right. Right. This is the, the leave something to the imagination principle, right? You show, like, the effects of the monster and signs of its passing, but you don't actually show it itself until the climax, yeah. if ever. And this, and you can totally see this effect at Christmas with kids, or even, I'm sure you have experienced this too, if you ever got handed a present, and you're excited about it, and you're like, oh, what is it, what is it, and you open it up, and it's like the worst thing in the world. Well, it doesn't even have to be the worst thing. It can be something really cool, but it's still not, you know, some amazing thing that you were super excited about, or you didn't even know what you were excited about, yeah. but, you know, okay, I guess somehow doesn't satisfy that. Ugh, all right. Well, and the thing is, it even if it's something that you're excited about, it's not going to be everything that it could have been that you were yeah. excited about. Yeah. yeah. If you've got this this package and it's a certain size... And it's sitting under the Christmas tree as a kid. You you look at that thing and you start doing, you know, mental gymnastics in your head. Is okay. What would fit in a box that size? And you know, you you've got it. You've usually got it narrowed down by the time it's time to open it. And when you open it, it's going to be one of those things, but it's never going to be all of those things. Yeah. So the excitement is always diminished from the anticipation there because it is physically impossible for it to be everything that it promises that it could be, I guess. But yeah, but that's sort of the abstract monster. It is the thing that you play up, and as they say in Extra Credits, that's the exact thing that Lovecraft is talking about when he discusses the weird shapes and colors and things that are oh, yeah. beyond our imagination, because he's saying, you can't think of it. But when he says you can't think of it, it's sort of like the trick of don't think about purple right. elephants. You, you picture something and you kind of go, well, that's close. Yeah. And you're like, oh, that's that's terrifying. And because he's saying this is the worst thing ever, you go, all right, I have to think of the worst thing ever. <laughs> right. Within this, you know, that, that acts like this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The second type of monster. Peter, do you want to take this type of monster? Because you sort of put it up earlier. Sure. Um, this one is is a symbolic representation of one of the worst aspects of ourselves or something that scares us. Just as an example, Brandon has referenced extra credits, which is a great place to go for reference. I'm going to reference again GURPS Horror, third or fourth edition, because Ken Height, who wrote this and who's one of my favorite gaming authors, was kind enough to break the different monsters in the book down by what fear they represent. So just kind of flipping to a random spot here... We've got fear of disease, so you can have things like obvious stuff like the killer virus, but there's also the Nosferatu legend, and zombies can also cover the fear of disease, although they, they cover other fears as well. None of this is cast in stone. A lot of the time, a monster interpreted differently can symbolize a different fear or can be several of them at once. And fears that monsters have embodied have changed over time. Yes, absolutely. 
Vampires in particular. Uh, zombies also. They mentioned in, I think, the After Hours on Cracked, how originally there was a very voodoo culture to zombies, and then they took uh, a very menacing or assimilation quality when they were in the Red Scare, because it could be anyone right. and they will infect you and change you. And the voodoo thing was, as much as anything, a slavery yeah. fear. Yeah. Where, you know, you had these black slaves in Cuba and other sugarcane kind of plantations, places where that voodoo tradition was fairly strong, where you can rest, right? You're, you work all day for, you know, a cruel slave master, but at least you get to rest. The, the zombie fear is that you'll be raised up as a zombie, or not as a dead person, but as essentially a living, a, person. a living person turned into a zombie. And even that m little bit of rest is taken from you. You work all night and all day, you know, without even your mind to keep you as your own person. Mm -hmm. And then, after the Cold War ends, they became consumerist zombies. Uh, just like the mindless horde going after products and things. And now... With the Iraq War, I'm stealing this analysis from Cracked After Hours also, all of a sudden they're fast, and they're vi uh, violent again, and they're able to, like, tear you apart because we're afraid of dying horribly in violent events. Because yeah. the world has now just shown us it's not all cool. Like, we could be hurt any time. And so that's, even these things will change depending on what the fears of the day are. Yeah, And sometimes the change isn't all that effective, like uh, Twilight changing into the fear of, as Extra Credit said, I don't know, being liked by too many boys, question mark. Well, I would say at that point, it's <laughs> not a, a horror thing anymore. No, Be And that gets to kind of my, my main take on monsters, which is the unknown. When something is completely known and understood and, you know, is a high school romance subject or middle school romance subject, that's not scary. There may be some personal drama that's a different sort of story, but there's no fear. You know, there's no horror in that. It's just, oh, well, yeah, he sparkles. Yeah. Oh, that goes back to the whole abstract monster. A lot of times when the movie starts going, as soon as they flip on the light and you see it, it's like, oh, that's a guy in a rubber mask. Right. Ooh. Unless, you know, the... I'm sure you could do a story where here is a monster that you know completely, but at the same time is very scary because he's very difficult to stop. And at that point, it's not what can he do, but what secret does he have for me to stop him? Well, and the interesting thing about that is that goes from, like, primal fear to physical intimidation at that point. I know what this thing is. I know, you know, all of the stuff it's capable of. Right. Okay, now what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the same kind of fear that you have of, you know, some big guy looming over you, cracking his knuckles and, you know, threatening to pummel you in an alley. Yeah, I remember seeing some horror movie, and this was sci-fi channel badness. It <laughs> might have been a sequel to... Sharknado. Wes Craven. No, it was like a Wes Craven or John Carpenter... Dracula sequel, like, two or three after. Not terribly exciting. But what stood out for me was the fact that, oh, hey, we've got... It's college kids who are playing around, essentially, and they capture Dracula. And they've got him, and they understand him, and they're taking all the precautions they can. I mean, they're doing the thing where they lay out, you know, bushels of caraway seeds under, you know, with the, the idea that vampires have this OCD kind of thing where they have to count seeds before they can proceed, right? Or, you know, uh, he's afraid of this or that, and they have it all laid out. And then, kind of, as the, the climax of the movie approaches, all of a sudden, he stands up from the chair they've got him imprisoned in, where they're kind of studying him and trying to figure out how he works and all that, and he shows, hey, yeah, you know what? You've got all these things. That's great. I've spent millennia dealing with them. I'm better at it than you. You'd better think of something else. You know, oh yeah, you've got bushels and bushels of caraway seeds, throw another one out. Yep, 69,443. <laughs> <laughs> I've learned to count really fast. You know? While they're in the air. <laughs> yeah, things like that. And it, the movie was not good, but that was an interesting approach to it, 
Here's the monster. You know what he is. The audience knows what he is. Can you deal with it anyway? Mm-hmm. It, was, it was an interesting way to approach it. Well, that sort of kind of leads into the third classification of monsters. Yes, it does. Can I take this one? Sure. So the third one that Brandon's kind of given us to talk about here is a monster that makes the protagonist a horrible person. It's, it's a, a monster that exists really to make the protagonist horrible by comparison, or just as bad in their own way. I think probably the most current edition, version of this that we've seen is The Walking Dead. Yeah. And I think this happens in a lot of these. Monsters aren't so much the main subject of the story as the setting in which the story takes place. Yes, they're scary because the the world they live in is a scary thing, but they're a setting piece that happens that people use, but the drama is the people in the story, not the monsters. Sometimes. They are in this case. There are plenty of stories out there where the monster is the main threat. Oh, sure. Right, but I'm talking about in this thing where you're trying to make the protagonist the monster by comparison, right? You know, are they any better than this? I mean, the name of the show, The Walking Dead, the comic as well, right? The original comic. And the video game. Well, yes, but the comic came first. Let's give them credit for that. (laughs) The Walking Dead is not just the zombies. It's these humans who are walking, and they're still moving, and they're still themselves, but they're dead inside because they haven't figured out how to go forward. So, and in that kind of case... The monsters are secondary. They're used a lot as props, but they're not the main antagonist. Other people are the antagonists of that story. And it's sometimes difficult to tell the protagonist and antagonists apart. I think another example that's a little different is Vampire Hunter D. If you've ever seen those movies or read the the comics or books that those movies are based on, you have a world that's full of terrible, terrible things. And in those, the vampires are the ultimate evil, but the human servants of those vampires are what you're dealing with most of the time because they're awful. They're awful people motivated by base needs and desires. They try and spend a lot of time pulling the protagonist, who is whoever has hired D in this case, kind of down to that level and trying to corrupt them. When I think of this, a lot of times I think of Omega or I Am Legend. Sure. Which is, well, Omega Man is the source book for the, movie, uh, for the right. movie. In the book, it kind of ends with, spoilers, the man getting captured and sort of being revealed that he is the monster to this society that he has been going out and murdering in their sleep. There's that classic Twilight Zone episode, Eye of the Beholder. Yes, you know, you have all these shadowy figures who are working, you know, doing facial reconstruction surgery on this uh, woman who's been in this terrible wreck, and they pull off the bandages at the end. I'm not spoiling. This is 50 years old. Come on. But pull off the bandages, and it's this beautiful woman under the bandages. They hold a mirror up. Oh, I'm horrible. They, you know, she screams, and the doc. they kind of pull back to the doctors, and they have these horrible pig faces. And all of a sudden you realize, oh, wait. She's beautiful because I think she's beautiful. Everyone else in this room thinks she's hideous because she doesn't look like them. She's not up to their standards of beauty. Yeah. Which is a great episode and one of my favorite episodes. It's a classic for a reason. Yeah. One of the things that I think is interesting about this particular type of monster is that there are some that, to get back to our Virtues and Vices series Mm -hmm. a little bit, are keyed to specific sins. So you'll have things like tempter demons that, you know, are keyed towards lust like a succubus or towards pride like the ones that offer power, you know, in exchange for right. your soul, the Faustian bargain kind of thing. There's, uh, I mean, the, the zombies will actually, will kind of provoke people to wrath. And I've seen specific examples for different game systems of monsters that kind of make people get really lethargic, which simulates sloth and so forth. And I think, there's a lot of interesting narrative hay to be made out of some of the symbolic value there, along with a lot of the things that we have to symbolize in our Judeo-Christian mm-hmm. literary tradition. Indeed. You know, like I mentioned back in the types of stories, when you're telling a horror story, and horror stories will usually have monsters on them, it's all about the failings of the protagonists. Right. And the monster is, in a sense a reflection of their 
wrongs. Mm -hmm. Or, if not a reflection of their wrongs, they are the just punishment for being a horrible, horrible person. That's why uh, you hear, if you ever have sex in a horror movie, you're going to die. Mm -hmm. Because they're punishing sins there. At that point, it's just kind of ingrained. Anytime you see, you know, a couple go off in the woods and you know you're watching a horror movie, oh, yep, that's gonna... There they are. Yeah. Okay. There's the monsters. We saw that coming. Yeah, it's interesting. A lot of those films are very formulaic, from what I understand. I have not mm -hmm. really seen many of them, but I've heard this discussed enough where I kind of feel like I have. Well, and, and they're formulaic. There's usually kind of a stereotypical group of characters that all get killed off because of the, the bad stuff that they've done or, you know, the flaws in their character. Well, the stereotypical group of characters is Jerk 1, Jerk 2, Jerk 3, Jerk 4, and Girl Who Probably Survives at the End. Right. They are all horrible people. And a lot of times it's because it's it's lazy writing instead of we're going to make them the most stereotypical, like, oh, of course, this is her girl who's going to survive the end's boyfriend. He's cheating on her or has cheated on her with the other girl who's constantly hitting on him. So, of course, he's not making it to the end. Right. No, a lot of times it's blunt trauma trying to beat the obvious into you. So, we've talked a lot about why monsters are interesting. And how to make them interesting. interesting. But aside from just a random encounter in your... How can we use them in in our own games, in real situations? And we've kind of talked about this some, but how can we pick appropriate monsters? How can we pick a theme that's appropriate? You know, a monster that works well in one situation but not another. Let's kind of dive into this a little more with some kind of specific gaming examples or exercises. All right, well... I'm going to say that if you're going for generic horror, generic terror, the best place to go with is the abstract monster. Because you will probably get way more bang for your buck with the least amount of work and it not feel like a ripoff. <laughs> I was just going to say, it's a lot less work, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> There's something scary down there. Yeah. You're in a dark place. There's blood dripping from the walls. You hear a Screech. You might be eaten by a group. <laughs> I have done this to my players when I didn't even know I was doing it to my players. Yeah. For example, it was in one of the Pathfinder games that I ran, there was an Ankeg that was in a pile of trash in a dungeon. And the secret is, it was a level one dungeon, so the players were very low level. And this thing was terrifying to them. But the thing is, it was never going to attack them. It was just something that, you know, lived in this pit, and the goblins that were in the cave were using the pit as dumping place for garbage, and so the thing was occasionally getting garbage thrown on it, but it wasn't caring about it. Well, the party had camped pretty close to it, so what I ended up doing was, throughout the night, I just started having it making screeching, screeching noises. It's like, ch 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 And what is it doing? It's, it's just moving around in the trash. Yeah. It's just scratching itself. It's doing nothing that's horrible or terrible or even going to affect the players, but they were all terrified. Yeah. They, they were, they were like, oh no, is it coming <laughs> for us? No, it's not coming for you. It's making a bed. It's going, eh, clear this out of the way, clear this out of the way, clatter, clatter, clatter. Oh, that fell. All right. Well, <laughs> these discarded, uh, spent you know, blankets look a lot more comfortable than these rocks I was <laughs> sleeping on yeah. before. You know what this reminds me of is the track, uh, trash compactor scene in Star Wars. Oh, wow. yeah. Right? You got something moving under the trash, and you don't know what. And all you ever see is an eye and a tentacle. Right? You have no idea what that is. It's just something that lurks in there and strangles. Yeah. No it, idea. It does attack well, them. <laughs> right, it does. I mean, it's a slightly different example, but it's this idea of what's under here, I don't know. I can't see it. I can't get a clear shot, right? Yeah. I may have seen that movie a couple of times. <laughs> That's a good example. <laughs> I like that. Um, you know, it's funny. Actually, just this past... Uh, Friday when we were recording, I kind of did the opposite, where I very clearly presented a monster in the Inspector's game that we're running. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the not-nice ghost. <laughs> yes, the not-nice ghost. Uh, I'm running an Inspector's game uh, with Peter and a couple other people, kind of the, the usual Friday night gaming group. And they were dealing with a, a haunting in a theater, trying to get rid of the ghosts in there. Um, it's sort of supernatural meets Ghostbusters- so it's kind of fun. With the and, addition of wacky hijinks, because it's our group. Well, yes, and also Ghostbusters. But <laughs> had two ghosts, one that was kind of this unseen, but not really scary 
ghost, just kind of there, kind of felt by presence and that sort of thing. Kind of a very classic kind of haunting. And then something that was very upfront and actively dangerous. Um, you know, just showing up and being threatening and scary and causing terrible things to happen. And I don't know, I thought that worked fairly well, just kind of this straightforward supernatural confrontation. Yeah, especially since that was the second one that you introduced. Because then it, at that point, it, it got scary to us because it wasn't just how do we deal with this nasty, scary thing, but how do we deal with this nasty, scary thing in a way that doesn't imperil the other not nasty, scary thing that we don't want to hurt? You knew you could deal with the nice, quote-unquote, ghost without, you know, resorting to anything crazy or dangerous. You just kind of satisfy its last need and then you would move on. Which turned out to be letting it play Lady Macbeth. <laughs> right. Because, hey, it's a theater and why not? <laughs> right. And, but then you have this other one that's the ghost, actually the ghost of the manager of John Wilkes Booth's father. Which sounds crazy, but Junius Brutus Booth, John Wilkes Booth's father, was a famous actor. Famous actor, yep. Uh, and in actually in the hotel where this theater actually is, and this is actual fact, uh, he's supposed to have attacked and tried to strangle his manager. And uh, this is in Charleston, South Carolina. We're setting the, the game in Charleston because it's one of the oldest cities in the U.S. It's got all sorts of ghosts and ghost stories. It's all sorts of historic landmarks. It's a great place for this sort of game. Well, and you uh, live fairly near to it, so... Yeah, can... I've, I've at least seen it. That yeah. helps, right? You know? <laughs> so I have this real story to draw on, and I'm like, okay, well, what if he actually killed him? That would be fun, right? And then I've got this ghost of this guy, and it's like, is it... Wait, uh, are we after Booth? Are we after his manager? Who is this? You know, yeah. get, that, get that kind of thing going on. But when he showed, him, showed up, I thought that worked well, because you had a very clear, very upfront threat that all of us is scary because it's not secret. It's making no secret of what it is, and it wants something. Yeah. And what it wanted was not nice. No. <laughs> it's an antagonistic force, and you're still sort of dealing with the abstract there, because you don't know what it wants. We never did find out exactly what it wanted. We put it down too quickly. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you did a number on it uh, pretty well, so no complaints there. I mean, it worked out, but... Yeah, I mean, it's very much, here's a monster, but what does it want? It's that same kind of thing. How do we stop this? What's its secret? One of the other things that I, I think does bear mentioning is that sometimes normal stuff can be monstrous. One of the more interesting examples from the modern world is the, I would say legend, but it's more like documented history of the Lions of Savo, who just terrorized people in that area, killed a bunch of them, and particularly nasty ways, just kind of left the kills to rot and tracked people down in hospitals and stuff. It was, that was a genuinely terrifying moment for everybody involved. And they were normal lions. There was nothing supernatural about them. They were just nasty, probably deranged lions that were killing people. Yeah. So I know this kind of goes against what I said at the beginning, where one of the things that's interesting about monsters is that they provide you a trace of the exotic, but sometimes it's cool to switch it up by having people expect something exotic and then giving them something mundane and still scary. Right. Or something that's mundane that's acting unusually. Right. Yeah. It's a recognizable thing, but all of a sudden it's not quite right. What's going on here? The other thing that's interesting is there are things out there that aren't traditionally thought of as scary that are absolutely terrifying if you tick them off in nature. More people get killed by hippopotami, I think, than just about any other animal out there every year. Yeah. They're kind of ridiculous looking until one is attacking you. They're incredibly strong. They're incredibly aggressive. Well, they're extremely territorial. Yep. Um, they have an incredibly high fatality rate because they overturn boats, that, uh, like large boats, that venture into their territory. Yeah. A ferry crossing a river. And it'll flip over the boat, capsize it, and then attack everybody in the boat. They're horrible creatures. Yeah, they're really nasty. And yeah, you know, they look cute and cuddly, and, you know, they have adorable little pink babies, and they're great in zoos, where they have a tiny territory that nothing goes in without being very careful. 
Yeah. Also, bears. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> bears look fuzzy and cuddly, except for they can rip your arm off. Go watch YouTube videos of honey badgers. Yeah. They look cute. They're not. They're not nice. Actually, um, anecdotal story of uh, a badger from a former coworker of mine. I don't. I obviously had no way of vetting this, so take this with however much salt you think is appropriate. But it's a perfect example of how to use a something. A circle of salt, perhaps. Yeah, perhaps. Yes, um, <laughs> it's a perfect example of how to use something mundane as a monster. They were sent out to to kill this badger, and. Because they knew badgers were pretty dangerous up close, they set up with a bench rest and a, I think it was a .30-06 rifle and a scope. They shot this badger, and it charged in the direction that it was shot from. They shot it three more times before it stopped charging. Yep. Yeah, honey, badger don't care. Badgers are not very big, and .30-06 is the same rifle round that was used in the M1 Garand. That round <laughs> usually kills people in one shot. This badger took four. Oh, yeah. And <laughs> they're... They're crazy. They're nasty little yeah. buggers. And, and, you know, at the same time, you can mix this up because there are traditional monsters that are representative of nature. The Wendigo. The werewolves. Yeah, werewolves. So you can mix that up some. And it's nice to have the resources drawn and the options to draw on so that you can kind of decide what's appropriate for your story. The thing is, you can take these things and you can tailor the type of scariness to the type of story that you're trying to tell. And if you want it to be a horror story, you can focus on that. Yeah. Or if you just want it to be an adventure story, you can have these little hits of it. You know what? I got a good example for you. This is think going way, way back when we had Shannon Dixon on. Okay. Mm-hmm. I remember a story that she was telling of a steampunky sort of campaign she was running for her church yeah. youth group where the monster that appeared was a jaguar stalking them through the jungle. Yeah, that's pretty scary if you're... Right? <laughs> it, it suddenly, you know, something gets the drop on them. How do they deal with it? And it's just, you know, they know something's coming, and then here it is, all of a sudden. You know, it's a very scary thing, but at the same time, it's a big cat. It's a jaguar. And there's something to be said about the monster that doesn't just always come up and maul you, that lets you sit and think. It's like, I'm out there from someplace, mm-hmm. and and then I'll strike, and then I'll yeah. go away. With that classic, what are they waiting for kind of moment, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All right. We've talked about a lot of ones. There is one more that I actually okay. would like to put in there. Is going back to the monsters that make you the terror person. This is something that I have done a whole lot. Going back to, I don't have to mention the story again, the goblins. Goblins are seen as monsters. In my game, they made my party monsters. Right. This other man who was a pig person, they thought, oh, he's a horrible, terrible person until they started mistreating him. And then mm-hmm. he was like, look, you're being a terrible person. So another way to do it, if you want to make your party the monsters, is to set them out with an easy situation or a situation that looks simple if you don't dig too deep into it. And when your party doesn't dig too deep into it, right. you then pull out the other hook. Even to flip that around, one of the examples that was thrown out on the Crossover Nexus episode was E.T., where you have the mm-hmm. difference between how a child full of wonder and friendship treats an alien versus how these suspicious adults treat it. Yeah, which is pretty dramatic in E.T. Exactly. That's a great way to pull it off when, you're, uh, when your players go, wait a second, we're going to investigate more into this situation, and if they don't get the hook then... Yeah, now all of a sudden, hey, no, we know the truth. Guys, stop, stop. We need to do something to to protect this thing. Yeah, Yeah. there's a classic thing that I love to do with my monsters because it creates an interesting story. It's like, oh, we have to change tactics (laughs) now. Yeah, it switches it up a little bit. As long as you have contrast there where sometimes, hey, there really are monsters and sometimes, wait, is this a monster? I I think it's very successful. Well, and I think also, kind of to come back around a little bit, you can mix your monsters a little bit in a longer campaign and stay within the same theme, and you'll get this really nice feeling of cohesion. Sure. If you're doing, let's say, the exploration thing, you can start out with things like, um, you know, a jaguar stalking you through the forest, and you can eventually, as they get further and further away from the area that's that's safe and comfortable to the player characters, you can start adding in more exotic and more horrifying things as kind of the, the fear of getting further and further away from home sets in. Yeah. So you start out, and it's jaguars and bears, and by the time you get to the end, okay, now you got Wendigos. You know what's a great example of that in movies? 
the original King Kong. Okay. You have these, you know, American explorers, you know, the great white civilized man who lands on this island to explore it and we've got the camera crew with them to document it. And oh look, here's this native village and we're we're in this strange wild place. Look at all these not us people. Oh look, that's exciting. We're far afield. But even past that, there's a wall. There's a huge stories high wall that the natives won't go past because they know what's past that. Explorers breach that even further, and now they're in even wilder territory. It's someplace that the people who live on the edge won't go in. But, you know, we in our hubris, oh, yeah, sure, we'll just march right in. And all of a sudden, we're in this place full of giant creatures, dinosaurs and giant apes. Ah, hubris. You're off the edge of the map, dearie. Here there be monsters. (laughs) Right. And, of course, then... By breaching that wall, it lets the monsters in. You know, we have a a fight there, and then, oh, hey, let's bring King Kong back home with us. We'll show him off in New York. Well, that turns out well. What could possibly go wrong? Right, because at that point, oh, hey, look, we brought the alien back with us, this strange otherness back with us, which gets back around to, you know, what I was talking about originally. Humorous. Yeah, well, (laughs) and, and here's the thing. It's the alien, right, and... The sin of pride and hubris. Oh, sure, we can tame nature. Not a problem. Really? Also, in King Kong and his, you know, tragic death. Oh, look, you know, he was the most human of us kind of thing. You get that reflection back on us. Because they they make you sympathize with the monster. It's like, oh. Well, who's the real monster here? Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I love that. And that's another point I would say is try to make something somewhat redeemable about why your monster is doing this. Well, in, in some cases. Sometimes in some I, cases. that's not right for the story. Sometimes I think it's okay to just have scary monsters here, there be dragons. True. But, you know, at that point, again, who's the antagonist? Is it the monsters or is it the people who are trying to get through the monsters different ways? Well, and it could, even like with the, what we were saying about hippos, is it could be something simple as, you've walked into my territory. This is where I keep my babies. I don't care what you're here. I'm mm-hmm. going to destroy you because this is where I keep my babies. Right. Uh, Alien. I think we talked about this during the uh, Science of Storytelling series. There's nothing redeemable about the xenomorph, but it's a reflection of the fact that we aren't supposed to be there. Yeah. It's doing these terrible things because we're in its place. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I want to wrap this up here, but I got to wrap it up with a important question. Okay. What's your favorite monster? I tend to like the Ghost and Vengeful Spirits, which is the same answer I gave on Crossover Nexus. And I think the reason why I like them is because the whole central message behind one of those is there but for the grace of God go I. They're a reminder of how badly things can go if we are not careful. They're basically a personified representation of our own failings or our own obsessions. So I think they're really interesting for that reason. Brandon? I'm going to choose the worst monster of all. People. Okay, you're cheating. (laughs) Yeah, you are cheating. (laughs) Don't get me wrong. We're probably going to talk about people as monsters later, right? I mean, that's a whole episode in and of itself, or possibly that's the main topic that we talk about every time, but... Discounting people. (laughs) (laughs) I can't discount people, because people is is my favorite. Like, all the other ones, they're they're passe. They're masks for people. Like, vampires is a person in a mask. Werewolves are a person in a mask. Zombies are a person in masks. They're us. Mm -hmm. Even the xenomorph, which I'm like, okay, well, that's a weird twisted thing but it's it's not about the xenomorph it's about us well sure it's so, about us but you know which one excites you the most and and i have to go back to the monster that is human the monster that is a person the monster that is out there going after people yeah, fair enough i am way more interested in jigsaw even though i hate those movies than i am any other monster out there because jigsaw is a person all right fair enough how about you grant all right well i'm not going to cheat but I'm going to give you one that's going to sound kind of funny. V'ger. Gesundheit? V'ger from Star Trek The Motion Picture. And you're going to kind of look at me funny, and probably everybody's looking at their podcatcher funny and going, did he just say Star Trek The Motion Picture? Did he say anything good about that? But (laughs) trust me, 
if you haven't seen the movie or if it's been a long time, I can understand. But this is going to sound weird. I think Star Trek The Motion Picture is one of the films that has come closest to getting cosmic horror right. You have something absolutely massive and unfathomable moving through space, approaching Earth to do something. We don't know what. We don't know its intentions. It's massive and utterly alien. You know, it's it's a cloud that swallows whole planets and star systems just due to its size. I mean, it's unbelievably large, and it ruins things as it moves through. What are its motivations? We don't know, but it's making a beeline for Earth. We'd better go figure it out. And as we go and figure that out and get the history of this thing, as we understand it, we can then deal with it. On the off chance that people listening to this haven't seen the movie, I'm not going to spoil it, but ultimately, you know, there are sacrifices that are made and problems that are solved by the Enterprise crew, and they figure this out, but only <clears throat> after they get past the massive otherness of this thing that's approaching. Also, just by emphasizing the sheer scope and alienness of it through all the long, slow, lovely shots of this crazy alien thing, I, that's, I think, as close as we're ever going to get to putting that cosmic otherness on a film. So, you know, I like that as a monster. The movie, it's not great, but as a monster, I think V'ger works incredibly well. Okay. I've thought about it, and if you're really going to be upset with me saying people, I'll go with robots, specifically GLaDOS. Okay. From Portal. That's a good choice. I like that. They are probably the farthest away from people that I can actually think of, because they are sort of the pure logical coldness, stripping away everything that makes us human. Mm -hmm. They are the most other monster that I can think right. of. I suppose, like... The Elder Gods, <laughs> you know, the Cthulhu Missile, well, right. when handled properly. But they're so other, they're not really even defined. Yeah. You can relate to that, though. We can all relate to not caring. Yeah. Well, and I think the thing that's really interesting is you're saying that these are all, you know, logic personified and, and that sort of thing. But GLaDOS is one of the most human, inhuman things out there. Yeah. Like, she deliberately plays with your emotions and insults you and is very passive-aggressive and shows a lot of very specifically human traits. Yeah, and there's a lot of hubris in stories about robots and, you know, computers run amok. Look what we've done to ourselves by oh, making yeah. these things. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I, they're great monsters, absolutely. Which, by the way, when that got subverted in the Mass Effect series... That was really awesome. Awesome. I will have mm -hmm. to play that at some point. Yeah. They play around with that set of tropes in, like, every which way that you can possibly imagine. Yeah. Yep. That is, like, the central thing of Mass Effect, and it's very yeah. cool. I'll tell you what. I'm going to wrap up with one last really interesting detail that I think, Peter, you can relate to, and probably you as well, Brandon, and hopefully our listeners. I've been trying out Clockwork Empires from Gaslamp Games. Okay. Okay. Which is, for those who don't know, it's basically... Dwarf Fortress, if it were done by the people who did Dungeons of Dreadmoor and even more wacky craziness, a simulator of how long can we go until everything is ruined forever. Also, Lovecraft. Well, and it is done by the people who do Dungeons of Dreadmoor, just in case that wasn't clear. <laughs> right. Uh, also, it's in early access, and it's for a game that is still very much in an early state, is really good, and you should get it. I've occasionally been streaming it, so that's fun. Yeah. But one of the things that they're working on that they have in the game is a, a memory system where each character has their own memories of events, and they react to things based on those memories. And what they just added was they, ha they have fish people that raid your colony on occasion and try and attack you and kill you because you're getting close to where they have their eggs on the beaches. And I'm just going to quote here from their, their latest blog here. A fish person raider, driven to violence by the plundering of their young for food, rushes from the fog to beat a colonist with a coral club. Their fellow fish person raider, a few steps behind, fires a spike gun with a pop. The terrified colonist falls over dead. The fish person with the club pauses at this, then turns and runs from the corpse in horror back into the fog. Hmm. I didn't anticipate this. And this is continuing the developer quote. 
I didn't anticipate this, though I wrote the script that made it happen. Seeing the corpse they created by killing the colonist pushed the fish person over the morale threshold that flips a switch that makes the fleeing behavior much more likely. I had thought to simply have fish people become demoralized by seeing other dead fellow fish people, but it was triggered by any humanoid corpse at all. A small mistake, but a really cool effect because it implies that these fish people are not merely the goblins of clockwork empires, but people that may, in their way, sympathize with your colonists. Just so, sympathy is the goal of the latest efforts to increase the complexity of fish people to start becoming more than enemies. Once enough features are fleshed out enough, perhaps they can become friends, albeit creepy fishy friends with some funny ideas about how things work and a penchant for inducting their land-based friends into the ways of the deeps. No one's perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Which is cool, because I really like the idea of here's an enemy who becomes maybe something more than that. They're an enemy not because they are, you know inherently evil and against us, but because they have their own motivations and that makes them monstrous simply because they're not us. And all of that happened due to a script behaving in an unpredictable way. Right, which they're keeping. Well, that is what is the definition of emergent gameplay. Exactly. Like, and the whole game is based off emergent gameplay and it's one of the reasons I like and it. And you said it's made by the people who do Dungeons of Dreadmore. Yes. yes. Alright, and it's not Dungeons of Dreadmore. No. No. Okay. Alright, because I don't like roguelikes, but I That's might fair. give this a shot. Yeah, if nothing else, when I stream it, you should watch it. Okay. Assuming it doesn't crash. And assuming I'm not running one of my, like, 20 billion games. Yeah. They're, they're all going bad. strong, by the way. Like, That's good. All 37 all right. of them. <laughs> yes. Alright, well, we're at the, the one hour mark, so we should probably wrap this up. But No, let's, let's go for two. I'm sure we have more we can talk about. <laughs> you edit. It's up to go you, man. Two. I'm looking at you dubiously through the internet again. <laughs> you can feel the stare. All right. Well, I think this is a good place to wrap up, though. All right. Uh, thanks for listening, folks. Again, keep up with our social media feed for any updates that we have. Uh, and we're looking forward to talking to all of you. I'm sure every one of you on episode 50. And from all of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one. See you later, everybody. Peace. This podcast episode is a production of Saving the Game and may be redistributed under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, non-derivative license, so long as appropriate credit is given. Our music is by Ryan Humphrey. Saving the Game is syndicated through inroadsministries.com, rpgpodcasts.com, stitcher.com, and iTunes. To hear past episodes and to connect with us or our community of listeners, visit our website at savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, and happy gaming.